You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. This is Jennifer Stock, and I am your host for Ocean Currents. On Ocean Currents, we delve into the blue, watery part of our planet and highlight ocean-related topics. We talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policy folks, ocean enthusiasts, ocean adventurers, and more, all trying to uncover and learn about the mysterious and vital part of our planet. 2010 marks the fifth year that I've been hosting this show on the air here on KWMR, and my original intent was to help raise the awareness about ocean-related issues in our local National Marine Sanctuaries, and I just want to thank those of you that tune in regularly and listen. I've heard from some of you via email, um, just to let some local folks know. I've heard from folks throughout California. I've heard from Ohio, Florida, New York, and Illinois, so I want to say thank you for your continued support. I bring the show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is one of four special areas in California waters that are part of the National Marine Sanctuary system. Cordell Bank Sanctuary is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast, so we're right here, part of this local network here. So we have a lot going on today. I have a lot to announce, and I have a guest live in the studio, and I have Later with me, a filmmaker from San Francisco, Nancy Iverson, who is going to talk about a film that she helped put together and helped lead the program that the film is about um, that will be debuting at the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival next weekend. So stay with us towards the end for that. We'll be updating you on the film festival. So today in the studio, I have Bill Duros, who is the West Coast Regional Director for NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program, and we'll be talking about how we collectively manage and plan for ocean uses, specifically here in California. So please stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. And we're back. You're tuning in to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and today I'm pleased to welcome Bill Duros, who is the West Coast Regional Director for NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program. Bill grew up in the Bay Area in the East Bay and studied marine ecology at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And after working with the Santa Barbara County Planning Department in a division that regulates oil and gas in Southern California, Bill worked his way up the coast to the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, where he was a superintendent who oversaw all operations, regulations, programs, and protections for the largest sanctuary in California, and for a long time, the the largest sanctuary in the entire program. He has 25 years of experience on coastal policy and planning issues in California and is joining us today in the KWMR studio. So, Bill, welcome to West Marin. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? I'm doing really good. You had a nice drive up the coast today? Yeah. Well, it's almost always a nice drive, and I timed it right so that I didn't hit any traffic. It was a beautiful day. 
it must be nice when you get to drive up here. You can reflect on all the opportunities to protect this coast, since that's a large part of your role here on the West Coast. So I'd like to just start talking a little bit first about some of your earlier days before you came to the Sanctuary Program, because I think it's kind of an interesting point of contrast for what you're doing now. And you worked with the Santa Barbara County Planning and Development within the Oil and Gas Division. And what was what was your role there, and what standpoint were you coming from as a marine ecologist trained locally there? Yeah, so uh, Santa Barbara County uh, has some of the largest offshore oil and gas um, reserves anywhere in the United States. And, in fact, outside of the Gulf of Mexico, um, it is the largest offshore production area in the United States. And oil and gas development has been going on there for about 100 years. It started, the first offshore oil well was at the end of a pier, uh, in Summerlin, which is just south of Santa Barbara. So there's been oil development there for a very long time, and the federal government leased the offshore areas, and the state of California leased the nearshore waters um, 30, 40, 50 years ago for development. And the county made a strategic decision, the Board of Supervisors did about 30 years ago, that they felt like they weren't going to be able to keep all the oil development to prevent it. They wouldn't be able to block it. So they made a choice that they would allow some to take place, provided that they, the county, could regulate it in terms of the air quality emissions as well as permits for all of the onshore facilities. And so the division that I started working at in 1985 was that division that regulated the oil and gas projects that were there offshore. And I started as an intern and eventually worked my way up and was running the division for about seven or eight years. And it, you know, by and large, in my view, worked as a strategy because it wasn't unfettered development, and the development that did take place was incredibly controlled. The oil industry might say too controlled, but there were no major oil spills, haven't been since that time. The pipelines that were built had 10 to 1 mitigation for oak trees that were cut down. The oil was shipped out by and large by pipeline rather than marine tanker, which is far more risky. So... That strategy, by and large, paid off for the county. So I entered it, as you said, as a marine ecologist. I went to UC Santa Barbara, and I was very concerned about those issues. But, again, it was an opportunity for a job, which everyone faces when they're leaving college. And um, in our case, it was a very environmentally conscientious county and the staff as well. And, And really, frankly, even most of the oil companies we work with also had a very strong environmental conscience to them. They did not want to develop and leave sort of a scar on Santa Barbara County in that work collectively. Oil down there, there's natural seeps that are seeping oil. I've been out there on the water and you just smell it. Um, and in a way, you just know that oil is here. And how do they control all that? I mean, we won't talk about oil for this entire day, but I'm just curious from the seeps, is that something they naturally try to harvest in terms of keeping it local and sh- yeah in sh- fact there local. one of the companies there um, it was at the time Arco Atlantic Richfield company um, and now I believe it's Venico that owns a structure that Arco designed and put in that would capture the gas that was bubbling up at one particular po- spot near UC Santa Barbara in Isla Vista and that um, had a benefit in two ways they could actually capture the gas and the liquids that come off of that um, and sell those as a product but they were also able to get credit for reducing the air emissions that comes from the seeps in order to go and build other projects later on. So um, that's that's the main project that captured the uh, seeps that were there. And there's still, to my mind, a, an open question whether or not oil development accelerates or decelerates the seeps because they do take pressure 
when they develop oil out of the reservoir. And the oil and gas is coming up from roughly the same place that they're developing with a well. And so when you take the pressure away, you reduce the flow uh, out through the rock formations. On the other hand, there have been, I think off Santa Barbara, has been basically static. They've been developing oil for a long time. There's likely no more or no less than they would have seen otherwise. So we have other seeps around the coast. Uh, Anya Nuevo uh, down in San, Santa Cruz County, San Mateo County, have seeps that are there too. Not nearly as big as the ones off Santa Barbara. Uh, but it's a very interesting aspect of the formation that just happens to exist in that particular area. Yeah, it affects the geology of the area. Um, so what brought you from the oil gas world to the National Marine Sanctuary Program, which is trying to keep oil away from our coast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, uh, I often joke with friends that um, when I was in Santa Barbara, I worked for the local government um, trying to urge the feds offshore to do the right thing in terms of their development. And uh, since coming to NOAA, uh, it was 12 years ago or so when I was the Monterey Bay superintendent, I was a Fed um, trying to urge the locals to do the right thing. Because the sanctuary program, uh, some sanctuaries, some national marine sanctuaries come to the shoreline, come to the high tide line. And they don't have, we don't have management authority over what happens on land. But we do work with local governments and cities and counties and state agencies and, and state parks and whatnot to try to get them to do the right thing in terms of how they operate activities on land that, that could have an effect on the ocean. But, but I came up here just because it was a new opportunity. It was a new challenge. Um, uh, you know, I have been working on coastal planning issues and resource management issues for a very long time in California. And, and you know, I'm, I personally appreciate the diverse ex experience. I mean, to work on purely ocean issues when that was what my uh, years in college were all about was was probably a big part of the draw, too. Not that I do much marine science now, but I get to dream about it, and, and there's staff that do a lot of great marine science and you in support it, for sure. That's wonderful. Let's talk about the whole scale of management here on the West Coast, because the, the West Coast National Marine Sanctuaries, I should clarify, start in the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary, which is off the coast of Ventura and Santa Barbara. Then there's the Monterey Bay, Gulf of the Farallones, and Cordell Bank sanctuaries that are contiguous here in Central California. And then the region jumps all the way up to the Pacific Coast up off of Washington, the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary. And a lot of times um, we use the word ecosystem-based management in terms of how we manage these areas. But I'm wondering if you can try to explain what that, what that means. Yeah, so ecosystem-based management is um, a, a holistic approach to addressing broad-scale issues that happen in an ecosystem. It requires that manager, managers consider cumulative impacts, those impacts that can take place that might be very small individually, but when added up across dozens or even hundreds of activities can have an impact on an ecosystem. It also requires that we consider um, the human aspect, the human dimension of the ecosystem. For instance, it's you know, a, a very appropriate thing that we fish in the ocean. We're trying to catch sardines, for instance, um, something that a common fish caught here in, in throughout Central California. And yet fishery managers need to leave behind enough sardines for the humpback whales that are here depending on them, for salmon that feed on the sardines, uh, seabirds that feed on them. And so that integrated management aspect of the human dimension and humans, you know, sort of get a cut of the ecosystem, but also what the rest of the ecosystem needs is part of, in my mind, what ecosystem-based management is all about. 
And the third thing that I think is an integral part when you're talking about marine systems is you have to understand the connections between land and sea. What are the pollutants that are coming in and where are they coming from? Is it agricultural operations or maybe it's city runoff from urban areas and parking lots or perhaps it's harbors and marinas? And so that integrated aspect, you know, that was just one aspect of the land-sea connection, right, is the pollutants, needs to be part of a, a holistic approach to assessing and managing the ecosystem. Do you think that collectively amongst the agencies now that we're doing ecosystem-based management well? Well, no. I don't think we're doing it well. I think we're doing it um, amongst the agencies. And there's, I think we're blessed here on the West Coast with an incredible level of cooperation among state agencies working with federal agencies and federal agencies working with each other on ocean management issues in particular. You know, the governors of Oregon, California, and Washington signed an agreement called the West Coast Governors Agreement that coordinates their activities on among seven or eight issues and coordinates with federal agencies on those same issues. And, you know, that was an easy thing, I think, for everyone to get behind because, you know, who isn't for lots of improved coordination and collaboration. Um, but, but that's in some ways got to be one of the early steps in creating ultimately uh, a truly integrated ecosystem-based approach because these regional scale problems are probably the right scale for ocean issues to be dealing with. You know, the waters move back and forth and, you know, maybe you can manage a national park on land by looking at just the park. But even terrestrial park managers consider the broader regional ecosystem in in making their decisions, too. Yeah, especially with the migratory species. It's a huge deal. For those just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock, and we're talking with Bill Duros, who is the West Coast Regional Director for NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program, talking about the big, broad application of management here on the West Coast, and how do we do this? And one of the key terms that's been emphasized a lot recently is this term, which is almost a spinoff of this ecosystem-based management, I think, called marine spatial planning, which isn't really a new concept at all, but it really is about how we plan for specific uses in the ocean, because we need the ocean for our survival here. Can you compare a little bit about some of land zoning and marine zoning, and what are some of the marine spatial planning challenges that you're experiencing here on the West Coast right now? Yeah, so the new NOAA administrator, Dr. Dr. Jane Lubchenco, um, who comes from Oregon State University, and she's been running NOAA now for about a year, not quite a year, this is one of her initiatives and the Obama administration's initiatives to increase the level of marine spatial planning on the ocean. And um, as we talked about a minute ago, as a planner in my past life, I'm really drawn to this issue in that I worked for a planning department with the local government for 13 years. This to me, strikes me as something that's obvious to do and yet not nearly in the same way that we zone land, right? Zoning on land is parcel by parcel. You know, it might be 10,000 square feet. It might be 10,000 acres. So you have really big and really small, and there's an ownership issue on land that doesn't exist offshore. The goal with marine spatial planning offshore is not to replicate the land-based approach but to pull some of the key elements from it community involvement in how you make decisions about what happens in the ocean, Um, connecting science and scientists to decision makers to understand what's there, because the ocean's quite a bit more challenging. It's not just the blue waves or the white wind-induced white caps you see. 
there's a heck of a lot going on under the sea that's very difficult to observe. And so you need science information to help you make those decisions. And then it's bringing in geospatial tools, um, GIS or other tools that can uh, help you visualize decisions that you have to make and visualize data that tell you what's going on in a particular area. And with these brought together, the community, the science, tools that help you envision things, um, you can create a framework that's on a broad scale, in my mind, relevant to where you want certain uses to take place and what are activities you think should not take place in a particular piece of the ocean. Uh, the federal government's looking at this from a regional scale. The proposal is to create, I think, nine regions around the country. In our case, California, Oregon, and Washington would be one region. Alaska, for instance, would be another region. And uh, state governments and local officials, fishermen, other users, federal agencies would come together to start creating these sorts of broad themes as to what should be uh, taking place in the ocean, bringing data together um, and, and starting to build this concept of a marine spatial plan. Are there sp- specific uses that are being considered as part of this bigger marine spatial planning concept here in the Bay Area in terms of maybe Gulf of the Farallons, Monterey Bay, Cordell Bank area? Yeah, so I haven't uh, heard yet of any special uses that are either going to be zoned in or zoned out, if you want to sort of use that concept. That, that's premature at this point. The concept is to find out what are the big um, needs and opportunities in a particular area. All of us are uh, familiar with um, the, the problem that we face in this country everywhere with um, global climate change and the energy that's going to sustain us, not just a growing economy, but just sustaining us today. And where's that going to come from? So as it relates to the ocean then in terms of energy use, and that is one of the big, at least, concepts that's out there. Uh, oil and gas development is an obvious one. That's been around a long time. But are there ways and abilities to harness wave energy and wind energy, both of which are pretty common out in the ocean, common in this area? And are there areas that we'd want to put off limits to that kind of development? Because that kind of development has impacts as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's certainly a big driver that's out there. Um, the National Marine Sanctuary Program has been, in essence, doing marine spatial planning since the day someone conceives of a national marine sanctuary in an area. Cordell Bank, for instance, was an idea that came from, you know, the community to put a National Marine Sanctuary there, where it would go, what are the activities that would be kept in it, what are activities we put off limits within it. All that, in essence, was a marine spatial planning exercise 20, what, 25 years ago or so, 26 20. years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> Probably the planning was began 25 years ago. And, uh, and so we view that that's what we do in these process we've all gone through in the sanctuary program to update our management plans was a refinement of that kind of a marine spatial plan. And, and we've received no direction, we will have X or we will not have Y inside sanctuaries, as you know. So we're managing those with the community, with the other users. And, and you know, we're on a smaller scale conducting marine spatial planning every day in the National Marine Sanctuary Program. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the key things that you were a huge part of way back when we started our joint management plan review effort was Looking at the harvest of krill here on the West Coast, yeah. and that's I really think this is an amazing story to share because this is such a key success for this idea of ecosystem-based management and planning. You were instrumental in the, uh, banning the harvest of krill commercially here on the West Coast. Can you tell tell us a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, it, it, I appreciate that. It's a kind of a it's a interesting story. It's sort of a fun story. It's one that has I think a very positive outcome for everyone. Um, 
the, uh, when we begin a management plan review process, the first phase is called the scoping phase, where we go to the public and get their ideas and comments on issues. And at one meeting in Santa Cruz, um, a scientist there came up and raised the question of what can we do to protect krill. And uh, we quickly recognized this was a major problem and that there were some limitations on the harvest of krill. And let me back up to say krill, for most people may, may, may be aware of it, maybe not, is a very small crustacean, maybe one to two inches long, that has typically an annual life cycle, though some live 18 months or longer. A couple different species that are common here on the West Coast, but they are, the, the term building block is probably the wrong term to use. It's if you think of Keystone, the, right, pretty much, right? If you think of the, well, I was going to say the great cathedrals and these <laughs> amazing cities built throughout Europe that are built on marble, the krill is the marble on, on which these giant cathedrals, these ecosystem networks, food webs are built. And uh, krill is important to virtually everything that's out there. Anything that's bigger than a krill depends on a krill um, as one part of its life cycle. And that includes salmon and rockfish and whales and seabirds, et cetera. So... The, um, the concept that we had was to, first in the Monterey Bay Sanctuary, but we quickly um, recognized its potential as an issue, its true problem in Gulf of the Fairlands, Cordell Bank, Channel Islands, and the Olympic Coast Sanctuary here all on the West Coast are all ecosystems that are built upon krill. And we took that to the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, which manages fisheries issues up and down the West Coast, and they as well recognized this uh, problem. Um, and the need to find a way to ban its harvest in federal waters, but also at the same time fisheries associations like PCFFA, the Pacific Coast uh, Federation of Fishermen's Associations, also is a big champion of har- banning the harvest of krill. They went to the state of California to close some loopholes that the state had. And so over about a five- or six-year process, we created this West Coast-wide ban, not just in sanctuaries but throughout the West Coast, on the harvest of krill. We felt there was no need to explore for a fishery here, even though it is fished in South America, South Africa, I'm sorry, South the Atlantic in the Southern Ocean, uh, um, and in other countries like the um, of South Africa, but also in Canada. And it's a fishery that we don't necessarily need. No one's fishing for it now. And to any diminution of the population of krill from a human harvest standpoint would harm the ecosystem as we see it today. And it's essential to the recovery of things like rockfish. It's essential to salmon, which we're all waiting for them to recover as a population. And if there's any hope, they need healthy populations of krill. So it, the ban was really finalized about a year ago, um, and we're thrilled about it. We're thrilled that it's, it became a much bigger idea than, you know, one national marine sanctuary. It's now a West Coast-wide it's thing. It's huge. And is this in federal waters as well, up to 200 miles? Yeah, it's in federal waters from the state the federal law goes from the state waters, which is about three miles, out to 200, mm-hmm. and, um, as well as uh, Oregon has their own ban. California and Washington have their own state water bans, too. So it's so important. Yeah, it's a complete, a complete prohibition. Just we have a few minutes before we take a break here, but what would um, harvesting krill, who would, who would want to harvest krill and for what? Well, krill are used for a couple things. I, I believe they're used um, predominantly as a fish food for aquaculture activities. You like also, Atlantic salmon, right? Like Atlantic salmon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, they're also used uh, in aquarium food. They're um, broken down into sort of basic nitrogen for fertilizer. And I've also recently seen them used for... Um, vitamins. For vitamins, yeah. Vitamin pills for the omega-3 fatty acids. That's right. Which, you know, are certainly great to 
eat, all of us ought to eat more omega-3s, but you can get those from vegetables on land, and you don't need to harvest krill out of the ocean just to make vitamins for us. Well, I mean, really, it's an exciting thing because just being um, an educator that takes people out to see some of the wildlife here, it's, it's all about the krill. Yeah. And, you know, we always are looking at the timing of upwelling. When is the krill going to come? So we're big krill fans here in uh, <laughs> the great. Bay Area. Well, we're going to take a break in just a little bit uh, before we move on to some other topics. But if you're just tuning in, this is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And my guest today in the studio is Bill Duros, who is the West Coast Regional Director for NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program. We're talking about the big West Coast here and how are we best managing it and thinking about future um, planning for conserving the resources that we have here. So please stay with us. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back in just a little bit. talking about large-scale ecosystem management, and now I want to kind of move into stuff that's bigger than us. <laughs> Global climate change, it's dominating the conversation for everything these days, and I know that sanctuary or ocean management agencies and the state and lots of different groups are thinking how to deal with this and how to best survive what we don't know. How are um, national marine sanctuaries and parks and states, what can they best do to help ensure that the marine resources that we have here can continue to thrive with what we just don't know what's around the corner? Boy, that that is uh, a major issue, Jennifer, that um, we are all facing. We're all trying to get our arms around uh, both what does it mean and what can you do about it. Um, the, the problem about what it means is uh, you know, for us, a lot of the, you know, all National Marine Sanctuaries are place-based, right? So, Let's take the Farallon Islands. The Gulf of the Farallon Sanctuary surrounds those islands, and that one of the things that you see if you ever make it out there are hundreds of thousands of seabirds. And the question is, for instance, are those hundreds of thousands of seabirds going to still be there in uh, 20 years, 30 years as climate change continues? Will they move on and they'll be barren rocks? Or will uh, other seabirds show up and fill in the niche? If other seabirds show up, maybe that's not that big of a deal. But if nothing's there and the seabirds all move north, should we be protecting where they move to? Um, and so that's, you know, the challenge is understanding what's going to happen in the system and then what do you do about it? Obviously, you know, we care, NOAA cares, sanctuaries care about slowing down or halting climate change. But that's not necessarily a, a problem that we're best able to fix ourselves. You know, we can educate and people like you who educate communities about what they could do it's critical that everyone understands we are all going to have to play a role in solving this. We all unknowingly played a role in creating this problem, and we're all going to have to play a role in solving it. But we're going to need uh, bright ideas and creative solutions to problems that we frankly haven't even uncovered yet. The one that has me the most uneasy is ocean acidification, where due to climate change, there's more carbon dioxide in the air that carbon dioxide dissolves into the ocean. And when it does, it makes carbonic acid, which acidifies the ocean. When the ocean's acidity goes up, things that form shells may not be able to maintain their shell or form a shell because it will get dissolved. 
Um, and that would be a problem if you want to eat abalone, but it's also a problem um, way bigger than that for the basic elements of the food chain. We were talking about krill. Well, krill actually depend on smaller organisms, and they, those smaller organisms need a shell. If they can't form a shell, the whole system basically shuts down. And some people think that it's that basic element um, closing down that's responsible for these mass extinctions we've seen on the planet in the past, in the geologic record, due to meteorites or other big changes. They think that the, in the end, the oceans change, and that, in essence, wiped out the planet. So um, we're, we're going to be a long ways away from getting an ocean that's that acidic, but we are going to start seeing changes. And you know that's why getting the total amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reduced is essential, uh, because we don't really quite understand how acidification is going to manifest itself. And if it does, from a management standpoint, is there anything you can do about it? Yeah, it's pretty tough. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's still quite overwhelming. And I think the best thing we can do here, I know in the sanctuaries and in this local community, is just continue to work with our community and reducing our emissions as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, talking about it in these sort of dire terms, it's, it's sort of a glum topic. No one really likes talking about it much. Um, on the other hand, I think if we don't start talking about it, you know, with the problem's going to be on us and we're all going to wonder, hey, how come we didn't talk about this sooner? So... One of the last things I want to talk about with you is um, I know something that you've really enjoyed about this West Coast region is that it is a destination foraging area for so many animals with incredible natural history stories with uh, leatherback turtles coming over from Indonesia to feed here and pink-footed shearwaters and whatnot. What are some of the stories and partnerships that you're working on that are Thinking about the long migration path of these animals, they're not just here, but they're spending time in other parts of the ocean. Yeah, I mean, you sort of hit on a really <clears throat> cool thing that you know, may be underappreciated, but I look at the Central Coast here as a great big dining hall uh, for so many animals that come here. I mean, certainly some species come here to reproduce, but far and away the bigger draw <laughs> is the food that's here. And this really, really productive ecosystem from the winds that lead to upwelling, that lead to things like krill, which we've talked about, bring in so many species um, that uh, you mentioned a couple, the pink-footed shearwater that fly up from South America, from Chile and Tierra del Fuego and Argentina. This is a really long way to fly uh, for food. A little bit shorter than the city, though, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, you come here, if you're a, a bird like that, because you want a reliable food source. And so these birds come up here in their winter, our summer. We also get albatross, black-footed albatross and other laysan albatross occasionally that fly from the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Another, I don't know, what, four or 5,000-mile journey, 4,000-mile journey to fly here, again, to feed. And they'll do that, the males and the females, while they're uh, feeding chicks on the nest. And one, again, it's a long way to come to feed, but you come if the food is reliable. Uh, and so I think those are some of the you know, very few of the fascinating stories, whales that come here. Um, you know, there's uh, Humboldt squid, these invertebrates that make some of the longest migrations of any invertebrate as fast as any, you know, warm-blooded mammal can make that swim up and down from Mexico to the Central Coast. And, uh, you know, the jellyfish that show up sort of mysteriously that draw in the leatherback turtles that you referenced. So there are a couple things that we're doing, um, and and frankly, if we had you know, more resources, more time, uh, you know, a little more money for some of these initiatives, we'd be doing more. But we're, um, I've got a meeting later in, in February with the West Coast Regional Director for the State of Mexico. 
to talk about what are some of the partnerships that we ought to be considering where you know the California gray whale some say should be called the Mexican gray whale because they are born in Mexico mm -hmm. um, and they come here uh, and they stop along the way while they go up to Alaska and white sharks as well um, certainly the ones off the Channel Islands uh, go down to Guadalupe Island in Mexico to uh, feed we're talking with Chile and the Chilean government about some initiatives that might make sense on these shearwaters, these birds that are flying up here um, to this area. And we're working with um, a, one of our partner protected areas, the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, to develop educational programs with schools in, the, in California and in Hawaii to um, educate folks, students in those schools about uh, the reliance that these albatross have on a safe place to uh, lay their eggs and a safe place to feed in the monument and marine sanctuaries like Cordell Bank here. So these shared management objectives that I think are important where we've got a resource in common, there's so much we could work on, those are essential for us to be concentrating on. And we're trying to do that through education as well as science. Finally, we, just in a few more minutes, Nancy Iverson should be calling in. As the director here on the West Coast and the challenges we were talking earlier about climate change, have there been any changes that you have made personally in your life to reduce your carbon footprint? And what is one thing you would recommend to our listeners for a small but meaningful change that could make a change in their lives to help benefit the ocean? Well, I, I'm a big believer in um, using your feet to get around. And I think that that means walking or riding a bike um, we've all got to do more of that. Um, I'm, you know, I, I walk. I live close enough in Monterey to my office. I can walk there quite often, not as often as I should. Um, it's easy to find an excuse, just like exercising. It's easy <laughs> to find an excuse not to do it. But um, I, you know, in my family, we walk to the store a lot rather than take a car. We throw the stuff in a backpack or a reusable bag, um, and and that's been probably the biggest change that I've made because. You know, we've changed light bulbs and everything else in, in my home. But my view is that it's the automobile is one of the bigger, the, I think it's the biggest contributor to um, climate change emissions. And we've got to reduce our use of automobiles. So um, getting out of the car, getting on your feet is also healthy for you. Um, and, you know, I've, from time to time, it's sort of a pain in my local community about why isn't there a sidewalk here? How come we can't park bikes in front of the movie theater or Etc. And I think everyone needs to get involved in that regard. I mean, Marin County is pretty darn advanced in that regard, and yet, um, you know, there's probably more we all could be doing, even in Marin County, to get out of the car, walk, take a little longer to get there. Um, I'm not suggesting anyone needs to be perfect at that. Though I recently met a woman who got rid of her car and rides her bike 20 miles to and from work, and everywhere she goes, She's that's on great. a bicycle. Right so on. That's something to aim for. So next meeting in Monterey, you'll give me some time to ride my bike there. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All Take right. the train and ride your bike. <laughs> I'll work on it. Great. Well, Bill, is there any other last thoughts you'd like to share with uh, the West Marin community and listeners here about National Marine Sanctuaries, ocean conservation, your role? Well, I mean, I, I, oceans <clears throat> are a really powerful thing to so many people. And there's uh, an awful lot that we do in our program um, you know, to try to help, you know, protect those oceans. But it, take, for instance, the staff of the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary is seven people, you know. Uh, you could barely fill out a basketball team for the, 
for the Saturday night Marin County. I never thought of that. YMCA Adult League. You know, hey, so we could play volleyball. You could play volleyball. So yeah, you got the same number. You got six, so you got one sub. And so it's it's an awful lot of work for very few people and very few resources. And we depend so much on partnerships in the community. Uh, we depend on volunteers to help with the work. From time to time, people donate money um, to our program, and those are essential things that help make a sanctuary work, not just here in Marin, but uh, but everywhere. Thank you so much, Bill, for Thank you, Jennifer. a wonderful interview. Really nice to talk with you about some of these big picture things. I met Bill as soon as I started here at the Sanctuary Program with our first joint management plan review meeting, and it's been great working with <laughs> and you. And we survived that. And we did, and we're now moving on. So, uh, once again, we've been talking with Bill Duros, the West Coast Regional Director of NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program. And we're going to take a quick music break here. On the line, I'm hoping I have Nancy Iverson, who is a filmmaker, and is going to talk about a a film that is going to be shown at the San Francisco Film Festival this weekend called From the Badlands to Alcatraz. I had a chance to preview this film. It was wonderful, and I'm hoping to share it with you. So, please stay with us. You're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. On the line with me is Nancy Iverson, a filmmaker, also a doctor in San Francisco. Nancy, you're live on the air. Hello, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us today on KWMR. Your film is called From the Badlands to Alcatraz, and I'm thrilled that you're joining us today. Nancy is a doctor who got involved with the Lakota tribe in South Dakota and created this film talking about this experience that she helped lead, um, bringing students and their family members um, here to San Francisco. So, Nancy, please give us an overview of the film. How did you come up with this story to share with a broader audience? Well, I came up with this story because it happened, (laughs) and it's a story that doesn't really translate as well in written words or just photographs as it does in a film. It's a pretty unbelievable saga that that Lakota people would come from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota and arrive in San Francisco, some of them non-swimmers, and within a week be um, ready to swim from Alcatraz to San Francisco. So nobody quite believes it anyway, but it helps to have it in a film so that they can see it happen. So you started working with the this group, the Lakota youth, um, as a doctor, and what did you were noticing that there were People were dying at earlier ages, living unhealthy lifestyles, and how did you get to work with them? I'm a pediatrician, and I'm originally from South Dakota, so I had gone back and traveled to the reservation in the early 90s and was invited to work some in the hospital there. So I worked in the Indian Health Service Hospital a total of four times on Pine Ridge, and um, just noticing the... The the life expectancy there is 20 years less than the rest of the United States. So that's really just a staggering proportion there. The poverty is incredible. Pine Ridge is in the poorest county in the United States. And there are just so many things that are um, relevant to any any sort of healthy lifestyle, healthy way of living that are missing in a culture of poverty and limited resources and that kind of thing. So I really wanted to look for 
we can't necessarily change some of the big things, but we can change some things dramatically in very small ways so that people can learn to make good choices in a moment. People can feel very passionate about what they're personally doing. Um, I, I swim in the bay, and I love it so much I want to share it with other people. And, and doing the Alcatraz swim, of course, is, is sort of a world-renowned swim feat for people. Wonderful. So how was it to um, introduce this concept to these folks in South Dakota and, and invite them and track them to San Francisco Bay? It's uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, and it was also interesting to to project the idea to people here and get them to help with it and, and volunteer. Over the years, we've done it seven times now, and people have become so enthusiastic about helping out and supporting the program. It's, just, it's been just wonderful. The first few people that I had were people that I had actually worked with at Pine Ridge. So at least we had a, a working relationship going, so it wasn't a completely unknown quantity to listen to what I was suggesting and follow through with it. So how, does, how do you prep the students um, before they come to San Francisco Bay to swim? How do you prep them in their hometown in terms of preparing them for this experience? And you do more with them here besides the swim. You also talk about healthy food and food sourcing. So how do you get them ready for this big change? With some of them, we do have a chance to get them ready, and especially Richard Ironcloud, who's in the film. He was the first Lakota to participate in this project. He was a diabetes educator at Pine Ridge when I first worked out there. Um, so we talked a lot about ideas for the whole program, and, and he really helped sort of plan the program with me. Uh, over time, we've had sort of a, almost I'd say a half-and-half half mix of people that have either come before or are very familiar with the program and newcomers that literally get dropped right into it at the last moment. There might be an empty spot in a car coming out, so someone's not quite grabbed off the, the street corner, but close to it. <laughs> um, and some people get to know about it longer and spend more time preparing. How was it for these um, Native Americans to return to a place that was originally occupied by Native Americans, coming here to Alcatraz and just the symbology of that? How was their feelings about coming to this place that was a really cool part of the program, and it wasn't until making the film that I realized what a an impactful visit that is. We we get to do a tour out on Alcatraz with John Cantwell, who's a, a National Park Service ranger out there. And uh, for one thing, very seldom have they been included as the privileged group, and I hadn't really thought about it, but when they interviewed about what was meaningful for their time in San Francisco, that was one a very meaningful experience to be in the privileged group where they were taken into the more private parts of the island and things. Um, yeah, that was really good. Now, you said some people, this is their first time swimming ever. How in the world did they, I mean, with very little training, do this? I'm so amazed by the courage of um, the students, but also some of the adults. You said some one of the um, participants was their first time ever swimming. It was her first time ever swimming, and there is a, a scene in the movie that shows her getting into the water. Um, she did not do the whole Alcatraz swim this time. She was out here with her two sons um, for the program, but she has gone back to the reservation, learned to swim, and is planning at some point to come back and do the Alcatraz swim. That's so cool. But even for the people who are 
somewhat familiar with swimming, which none of them that have come out here have been totally familiar with swimming. I still, I'm just so proud of them, and I find it so courageous that they would get into the water on a Monday and the following Monday actually do the Alcatraz swim. It's, it's a huge accomplishment. And it's very well portrayed in this film, From the Badlands to Alcatraz, which you conveyed so well throughout the film. Now, the film's showing at the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival this weekend. Do you know which day and which session that this film is showing at? It is showing um, February 7th, which is Sunday, in the 10 a.m. program. Mm -hmm. Our website for our film is badlands2alcatraz.org. And if you go there, there's actually a link directly to the ticket purchase Oh, great. So it'll take you to the Ocean Film Festival website and, and again, directly to the ticket purchasing place for it. Wonderful. Are you going to be around, and are some of the students going to be here as well? We are, and weather permitting, there has been such nasty weather in South Dakota this winter, but we are expecting that Richard and Arlene Ironcloud and Lisa Waters will all be joining us for the film festival. That's wonderful. Well, I'm hoping we can arrange a local viewing out here in West Marin sometime. But for those that are interested, the film From the Badlands to Alcatraz that Nancy is talking about here will be shown on Sunday at 10 a.m. at the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival. And this is part of a a longer festival that starts actually tomorrow or February 3rd. And the films are taking place at Theater 39 at Pier 30 at the Embarcadero and Beach Street. So A little bit of transportation planning is involved for that. But, Nancy, I just want to thank you for coming on the air for a few minutes to talk about this. It was such an honor to be able to preview this film, and I really enjoyed it, and I hope you have a wonderful um, film fest. Well, thank you. And I would just like to put, I think the whole Ocean Film Festival is such a wonderful festival, so I would encourage everyone to check it out and go to as much of it as possible. It's got a fascinating array of subjects and, and film work in it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. So the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival is taking place. It starts Wednesday, and it goes through Sunday. And you can just go to www.oceanfilmfest.org. And I concur. It's such an amazing film festival, incredible diversity of short films, longer films. Um, Even Rick O'Berry is going to be there, who has been very involved with turning around how we use dolphins and how we look at dolphins. He was one of the um, early folks that worked in the aquarium industry and has very much changed his tune about uh, the whole tone of dolphins, and he was very involved in the film The Cove, which will be showing at the San San Francisco Film Festival, which highlights how dolphins are being used in Japan. So Another amazing opportunity to learn about such a huge issue, but happening pretty far from here. So I hope that some of you will come on down to the Ocean Film Festival this weekend. Got a couple other announcements, actually, for you. You know, with the big weather that we've had in the area, it's been great. Luckily, not too many disasters have happened in terms of transportation and roads and whatnot. And I hope you keep tuning in to KWMR for the latest and greatest in information. I know I have been, which has been very helpful. It's been an incredible deluge of water, which we really need, and we need more. But I thought one thing you might be interested in is tracking El Nino. El Nino is the 
oceanographic system that really can change weather patterns in the United States. And it is moving all the time. And there's actually a website you can go to to track it almost weekly where oceanographers put an update of what's happening with El Nino. And I thought some of you might be interested in looking at that to to really learn a little bit more about the oceanographic system um, and how it affects us up here. And it's a very easy website, El Nino, E-L-N-I-N-O dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. So this is part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The oceanographers do lots of modeling of climate and oceanography, and this is a really neat resource that gives you up-to-date information about El Nino. But also tied along with that is making sure to pick up your trash, seeing a lot of stuff come out on the beaches, um, through the watershed, and um, that's one simple thing we can all do to help prevent marine debris is by keeping it off the ground. We are just out of time. I've got, of course, more to to talk about, but we are out of time, and I'll have to bring it up next show, which is next month. And for those of you that tune in in January, hoping to hear Ricky Ott, she will be back with us in March. Ricky is the author of Not One Drop. She is a marine ecologist and activist for the marine environment, and we'll be talking about the impact of the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska. So we're going to have her back in in March, so please stay with us. But, of course, you can always catch past shows of Ocean Currents. On our website, the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, and hear um, past shows that have gone back the last five years. Bill was mentioning earlier about the uh, Humboldt squid in the area, and I have an interview there with uh, Dr. William Gilley, who was a Humboldt squid researcher, who is a Humboldt squid researcher, a really interesting interview. So please go check out our podcast, cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks so much again to Bill Duros for joining us in the studio and Nancy Iverson by phone. And keep listening. First Monday of every month, we'll be talking about ocean topics. Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.